Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome. I'm Eva Cohen. I'm head of dance studies at Princeton University under the program in theater and dance. Can you hear me well? Yes. Good. So, Princeton University Public Lecture Committee and the, program in, in the, and the program in theater and dance are delighted to welcome Paul Taylor as the J. Edward Farnham Lecturer. We are particularly honored to be included in this year's celebration of Paul Taylor Dance, Dance Company 50th anniversary. That is half a century of work. No, words are words, but when you think about it, it's amazing. Just really. Constant production. Every year, two new works. Every year, two new works. The discipline. Inspiration or no inspiration. Every year, two new works. That's a lesson to us. This coming Tuesday, the company will perform at the McCarter Theater, and it is hard for me to remember when another dance company was so entirely sold out, standing room included, so far in advance. I'm still trying to get a ticket, so please let me know if you have one to spare. Can you start dancing in college and still hope to make it as a professional dancer? This is a question that we as dance educators confront time and time again. Paul Taylor started his, dance study, of his, his study of dance at age 22 after attending Syracuse University on scholarship in painting and swimming. <laughs> Two years later, he joined the Martha Graham Dance Company while simultaneously managing to perform with Merce Cunningham and George Balanchine. In, 19, in 1954, he formed the Paul Taylor Dance Company and proceeded to choreograph 122 works, and there is no end in sight. In the mid-50s, mid Taylor's emerging talent began to be recognized. Excited by the experimental arts of the time, Taylor became friends and started collaborating with the painters Robert Rauschenberg and Jasper Johns. Taylor shared their desire to bring the vernacular into high art using gestures and stances he saw on the street. For Taylor, a dance is the first step in returning the viewer to everyday life bringing awareness to the beauty of simple pedestrian movement. Like other minimalist experimental artists of the time, Taylor's break with convention was simply a starting point for further investigation. His later pieces combined this minimalist and pedestrian approach to movement with ballet-inspired vocabulary. Ultimately, it is Taylor's bridging the polarity of the subtlety and lightness of ballet with the physical weightedness of modern dance and the spontaneity of everyday, of everyday gesture that is his hallmark. To that, we can, end, we can add his vast and eclectic use of music from Baroque to American swing, his themes which range from the angelic view of humanity to a recognition of its dark and monstrous aspect and not least the incredible, beautiful dancing he inspires in his dancing, in his dancers. 
Paul Taylor has spent the past two decades directing his senior and junior companies and teaching a new generation of dancers the rigors and beauty of dance. Currently, his two companies continue to tour nationally and internationally, and numerous ballet companies now around the globe perform his repertory. Paul Taylor is the recipient of many national and international awards, too numerous for me to enumerate here and now. I'm very pleased to welcome Paul Taylor. I also want to welcome Martha Keefe, assistant professor, uh, so, sorry, assistant professor of dance at Ohio University and a choreographer in her own right, who will conduct the conversation with Taylor this afternoon. Also, I'd like to welcome Wallace Chapel, Taylor's executive director, and John Tomlinson, his general manager. The 50-minute conversation will be followed by a short question and answer session with the audience. Will you please welcome him? water because I have hard questions for him. So. <laughs> so thank you very much for that um, great introduction. And I don't um, want to repeat it, but I do want to just add to it from my perspective as a dance historian that I think that the significance of the 50-year and counting life as a modern dance company cannot be underestimated. Uh, this is a landmark not just for Mr. Taylor and his company, but also for the history of modern dance here in the United States. And we thank you for that. Um, the other thing I want to mention is, as a historian, I do like um, to recount one story of an important concert from 1957 at the 92nd Street Y in New York City. Uh, it was called Seven New Dances, and it was so um, startling and maybe even off-putting to audience members at that time that it inspired Louis Horst, who was then the critic for the Dance Observer, to publish a review. And you said earlier that you often remember the bad reviews, so it's great that I'm bringing up this question first, maybe, that the review was just four square inches of blank space in the paper. And it really drew quite a bit of attention. So I'm wondering if we could start actually by talking about what you thought when you saw that blank review in the paper. Well, as I remember, I was furious <laughs> um, at first. But when I thought about it, I wasn't, uh, because Louis Horst was a teacher of mine. I took his pre-classic forms in choreography at Juilliard. And he'd encouraged me and was always an influence. And uh, I thought, well, I know he's not trying to destroy me. Um, so I didn't, I didn't really um, suffer uh, from that review. And, and maybe even it drew some attention because oh, I've sure. never, well, never in the, been... In the end, I mean, nobody had ever heard my name in New York. Um, <laughs> and now, you know, there were a lot of people abuzz. And I remember that Martha Graham shook her finger and said, naughty boy. <laughs> <laughs> 
So at that time, when you were first starting out, it was really, I mean, you write about it in your autobiography, Private Domain, that was published in 87, that the company started from nothing, and it was just um, that you had no vision for the future, and it was only a means to get myself on stage. I corralled a small number of acquaintances and began to give concerts. So that's, you know, a few years ago before you just invited a few friends to join you up on stage. Did you have any sense that it would have that kind, your company would have this kind of insurance? Oh, no, certainly not. I just wanted to... To dance, I wanted to get on stage and perform. I had no intention to be a choreographer in the beginning. So you had been working with Graham, and at that point she was really making uh, dramatic kind of dances oh, yeah. with rich in character, and then mm -hmm. she lent you to Balanchine, and you'd done some work with Cunningham. So mm -hmm. how, what were you thinking when you started to make those early works? Do you remember what, your, what you were thinking well, about as a in choreographer? New York at that time, it was a very fortunate time to, to come there because um, as, as a dancer, as a modern dancer, you could uh, go and work with a lot of different choreographers who were our ancestors. With Doris Humphrey, Charles Weidman, um, Anna Sokolow. Uh, I could, the list is so long. And, and so dancers, although nobody had a full-time company, you could table hop and work, had the opportunity to work with many choreographers who I'd only read about. So it was a very fortunate time for me. And then when I uh, found I had even more time on my hands, um, you know, as you said, I'd ask friends and we'd put on a little concert and, um, and I'd make up some steps. And it was very helpful uh, having worked with these other choreographers, real choreographers, to uh, decide what I didn't like about their work. Uh, it, you know, uh, there's so many things that a dance can be, so much to draw from, that in um, honing down the possibilities, that was a great help. Of course, there were many things I admired too, but I remember thinking about the things that I didn't like that other people did first. So you knew. I don't want to do that, I don't want to do that. Yeah, it's like an audition. When you know audition dances, you get rid of the chat first. And then, you, so then what you were And left see with. what you're left with, yeah. So, so for many years you were, you were dancing in the company as well as making the dances. So that oh, sure, so yeah. So that you're trying to find yeah, people to dance with Yeah, about 20 years, uh -huh. yeah. And so and then in 1975, I think, you decided to stop dancing and just focus on choreography. Yes. I know that caused great anxiety for the dance world because so many people were coming to see the Paul Taylor Dance Company to see Paul Taylor dance. Mm -hmm. They had loved watching you dance in Graham's company and then loved seeing you in your own work. But we, can you talk about your decision to leave the stage? I didn't just sort of sit down and decide. I had a health problem and it was getting harder and harder uh, to perform. I'd always been afraid of audiences. so I. Had terrible stage fright, which most performers do, you know, I think, or at least uh, stage performers. And um, so it just all happened to me. I didn't really decide to stop dancing, but I knew the time had come. Things were getting harder and the touring was taking a toll. And uh, so I just pulled myself out of the pieces. And then it was it was wonderful because uh, when you're in a dance, you don't really know what it looks like from the front. 
and I was able to pull back and see the whole thing without being on stage at the did same you, time. Did you know that, so in your decision to leave the stage, was it, mm -hmm. did you already know that it was going to enhance your, your skill as a choreographer? Or no, I didn't, uh -huh. I didn't, I don't think I realized that. And before, before I stopped uh, performing, I had always made up steps on my own body and then teach them to the dancers. And now I was making the steps up directly on the people that were going to perform them, which was, uh, makes much more sense. Can you talk about why that would be different for people who have never um, either danced or made a dance, why that would make a difference whether you're doing it and they're learning it from your body or their? Because when I made up steps on my own body, I had a very special way of moving, and it was nearly impossible to transfer it. I mean, you could get the outline of the step onto somebody else's body, but it just wasn't quite the same. So it was better to, to work directly uh, with the people, not go through my own body. And so that there wouldn't be a sort of loss of intention by the transfer from your... Yeah, and it would be for that person in particular. But you had to be careful because, you know, no dancer dances exactly alike. And we all have quirks and specialties and weak points. And um, I found that I shouldn't choreograph quirks in because you couldn't transfer them to next, the next generation. So by that time you had a sense that, yeah, dancers stay with the company for... They stayed 10, 20 years, you know, nice long stretch, but not forever. That's the name of the game. Dancers are, have a, a limited stage life. And so um, what was it like for you to have people step into roles that you had created, like the, the solo in Oriole, for example? Well, um, there have been a few who I've enjoyed watching, and they come very close to the way I thought I looked. Um, or thought I did the movement, and uh, but most of them, Nureyev was terrible. <laughs> Bereshnikov wasn't bad, but he was disadvantaged because that solo was made for a person with long arms and legs, and Bereshnikov doesn't have long arms and legs, so he, you know he did the best anybody could, and he worked very hard. So that was a pleasure. So did you know from the beginning that you'd be interested in, in um, early works in your, in your repertory staying alive? I mean, that you, there were I mean, well, things that Well, I didn't, I didn't really think, you know, I never really planned ahead very well. Uh -huh. um, I'd make them and then I want to make a new one, and we dropped the other one. And I didn't have any sense of, of keeping a dance going constantly, because the rep had to turn over every year. But then eventually our seasons became longer and longer and we needed a, a lot of dances for, for the rep. So uh, we do revivals and it's like that. So when you look back at them now, are, do you find them interesting? I mean, one of the things that I think might be challenging is that a dance that you made in 1957, that yeah. you would never make that dance today. No. And you, and you wouldn't approach the music the same way or you've no. made so many other dances yeah. since then. Yeah. Do you want to get back in there and tinker with them? No, I don't tinker with them. Leave them alone. I mean, let them be what they were. Uh -huh. uh, sometimes they're better because of the people that, the dancers that perform them. Uh -huh. uh, but I, in general, I don't change a thing. Uh -huh. uh, you know, let them alone. One of the um, things I was thinking about uh, is that although there's maybe that Taylor dancers 
and dances might be recognizable. You can't, there's not a kind of signature choreographic approach that I think you take, that there's um, a contrast between dances that are lighthearted and funny and some that are very dark. There's a contrast between dances that are character-driven or maybe even have a kind of narrative element, um, more like Eventide or Sunset or Company B, and then there's ones that are more like pure dance. Could you talk a little bit about your choreographic process and you know, I've, luckily I've just won the lottery, I can commission you to make a new work, how are you going to no go kidding. about doing it? I'm going to hold you to it. Um, my choreographic process, well, <clears throat> you really want to know, it's, it's not very interesting, I think, because my process in the beginning, which is where it all starts, is very pra- pure, based pure, purely on practical necessities. That is, what's the budget? How long is the rehearsal period? Um, what's the music going to cost? Uh, who's going to be in it? Who needs a turn? Who doesn't? Uh, a million practical things has nothing to do with uh, what we think of as creativity. Uh, so I narrow the the thing down, like. I was saying before, and see what's left over. And, but I try in the process not to repeat myself too much, because I get bored. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't, if I've done something once, I don't really want to see it anymore. And it's also important in a, a one choreographer company or program that there be variety uh, in the dances, so that they're not all the same dance in a different costume. Um, and as I said before, there's so many ways to approach a dance that uh, just seems to be a bottomless pit to me. So there are always new things to try, and I try not to repeat myself too much. Of course, there are certain steps that creep back in, but. Um, well, maybe we could talk specifically about the um, pieces that people will see here next week. The program is, um, I think you're op- it's opening with uh, uh, Klezmer Bluegrass, which is the 121st piece in your repertory. It was the most recent piece made. It uh, premiered in October 2004. Then uh, Le Sacre du Printemps, the rehearsal from 1980, and then Promethean Fire from 2002. So maybe start by talking about uh, Klezmer Bluegrass and even yeah. how you came up with the music. Well, that that was commissioned by the, a Jewish organization. I forget the exact name. Um, that wanted me to make a dance that they could do in celebration of the 350th year that Jews first came to this country. So I thought it would be nice to find an American Jewish composer. And I listened and listened and listened, and most of it was very sort of sad and slow. And I was trying to make a, a, a celebration type dance. And I finally found um, of some music that's a combination of klezmer, traditional Jewish folk music, and bluegrass. And believe it or not, they really go together very well. And um, so that's, that's how it started. And so did those, both of those um, 
musical forms have um, vernacular dance forms that accompany it? No, I didn't, I didn't research at all. I didn't think I needed to do that. I just wanted to be happy. There are little hints of both American folk and Jewish folk dance in it, but nothing particularly interesting. Um, just to give a little flavor every once in a while. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the second piece on the program is one of my favorite pieces of, of yours is Le Sacre du Printemps from yeah. 1980. And I'm sure most everybody knows this piece of music. And you made a choice to not use the orchestral score, but to use yeah. the two piano yeah. version. Can you talk about the making of that piece? Because that really, you had some Well, we couldn't time. afford that huge orchestra, uh -huh. for one thing. And I also, I kind of liked the two piano version. And it was what uh, Stravinsky used in the original mm -hmm. rehearsals for, for uh, Nijinsky's piece, and um, it has been choreographed so many times over the years in so many countries that uh, I didn't want to stick to the original plot, which is about a sacrificial maiden and a kind of early Russian uh, uh, primitive mm -hmm. thing, although there, there are references to that in my dance. Um, I don't know what to say about it. It's, it's a plot. Uh, there's their characters. It's done in a style that's based on Nijinsky's fawn, afternoon of fawn. It's that Egyptian-looking, very flat um, look. And it's not easy to perform. Um, and there, I could go on and on. It, though I think the main thing I can say about that dance is that uh, you need to see it more than once to get it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, the thing that... It's, it, it's multi-layered. It has many references and, uh, uh, and jokes and things that are not so well, funny. Maybe since you're, you're um, doing a one-night stand here at, McCar or at McCarter, you could say something about... So you were thinking about the history of the music and the Nijinsky yeah, history. Yeah, I knew as much history as I could read about. And then, that, so you made a choice to sort of quote in some places the movement style from the... I wanted that style because um, I have a, a, a good feeling for that style. And then there's also, so there's there's that, there's that reference to dance's history and music history already. Yeah, and then there's the plot, and it's also, uh, while this story is going on, it's also about the dance company that's performing it, and there are a lot of scene changes, so it's not simple. And, and the story is about a detective, about a girl who goes to a detective uh, because she's in trouble, but we never know exactly why. She's just gone to, for help. And um, there's a, a, a gang of, of Chinese thugs and uh, policemen and bar girls and the girl has a baby. I mean, she comes to the detective with the baby already, and the the baby is stolen by the by the chief thug, um, and it goes on from there. But that's a reference you see to early um, movies, like the earliest Chinatown type movie, or even like a kind and of it's Charlie Chan, a black kind and of white, thing. Yeah. a black and white old time movie. And there's no color in the costumes except for the babies in red swaddling clothes. And there's a, a corresponding red dancer's bag 
in the piece, and everything else is black or white or gray. And you'll, when you see it on Tuesday, you'll see that the that the um, the dance company is sort of upstage behind a scrim, and you get a sense that they're in rehearsal. Which the, the whole thing is uh -huh. rehearsal for the piece that we're actually seeing later. So, so there's time switches. Obviously, something this complicated <laughs> with the plot. The I don't know how I figured it out. So, <laughs> but it does make sense if you see it more than once. <laughs> and there's actually, even if you only are going to see it one time, it it's it's such a rich investigation of the music as well. So Well, the main thing about a dance is that I've come to believe that there have to be dance steps. You know, all the references and the meaning and the philosophy and the poetics and the music and everything and the scenery and the costume, it doesn't mean a thing if there isn't some movement to watch. <laughs> I firmly believe that. <laughs> and I wish you'd tell it to to some choreographers that I know. <laughs> <laughs> so don't worry if you can't decipher the plot because there's some great dancing to be done in there as well. I mean, that is yeah. one of the things about that piece of music, and I think one of the reasons it mm -hmm. seduces so many choreographers. Yeah. It's, a, it's so complicated and it so It is, challenging. but the piano version, I find, uh, rhythmically is easier to hear. Uh -huh. I, I actually prefer uh -huh. working with it. That way, and then uh, the the um, evening will close with Promethean Fire, which you made in mm -hmm. two thousand two, yeah. and um, I I never really think um, if this is polite to say that I don't really always care a choreographer's intention in making a work. I care mm -hmm. about what I see in a work, right. and um, so whatever your intention was in making it, many mm -hmm. people are seeing a kind uh, in seeing that work are seeing something, a reflection upon mm -hmm. September 11th. It's the first well, that's the danger of talking to a choreographer mm -hmm. about his or her work, because you know, you'll get a very different picture, usually. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it certainly, whether it was in your intention that you, know, you live in New York, you work in New York, it's the first yeah. piece you made after that. Yeah. Um, maybe you could say, just say something about the, how you came to use that piece of music and well, I loved it, and it was the Stokowski version, which I remembered from Fantasia. Walt Disney had all these colors zooming around, his, you know, like uh, music visualization or something. And I, I remember being impressed uh, with the music at that time. I was a mere child. <laughs> and uh, so. You know, I I knew the music and it, I liked it, and so I picked it. Um, and were you thinking about the uh, about Prometheus when you as no you were no time? usually uh -huh. the titles come last uh -huh. uh, not always but usually I, I just work and then try to figure out what I've done and call it something that might be some kind of a a lead for an audience uh -huh. to, to like a a path into the piece. But um, a, a good bit has been written uh, comparing that dance to the Twin Towers. And uh, I didn't really have that catastrophe in mind. I can see easily why you might relate to that. Uh, and I did see one of the towers go down on my way to work during the time I was making that piece. Um, 
but I didn't have anything. That is that was too. Um, I I always hope my my pieces in the subject matter will be universal, not about uh, specific incidents mm -hmm. so much that can apply to all time and in the future, and people can still relate to it. But that's fine if people want to see it that way, you know, and it's meaningful. I mean, that's the main idea is to communicate something. So that, but maybe when that piece is seen in 50 years, people won't have that same correspondence, but they might have that same feeling of hope yes. and... Yeah, well, mm -hmm. the fire idea, the mm -hmm. Promethean fire, which renews itself mm -hmm. like a phoenix. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, on this... On the evening that people see next um, Tuesday, there's already an indication of your musical taste. You hear bluegrass music, that's uh, Clemser music. You hear um, you hear um, Stravinsky. So could, when you first started to choreograph, mm -hmm. one of your dances was made to a telephone uh, time recording sound, which you haven't gone back to that kind of music so much specifically, but. Um, you're drawn to a variety of kinds of music, and, it, and in fact, I think um, that many modern dance choreographers today really have been influenced by your musical taste. For example, mm -hmm. when you first used Baroque music in the 1960s, that was really unheard that was, of. That was heresy in modern dance to use Baroque music at that time. But I liked it. I, I had no musical education, no musical taste, really. <laughs> and it didn't matter to me. I liked it. So, and so, know, so if it's music that you want to listen to, is that yes, enough to make a, a dance Yes, music to it? is prime importance uh -huh. to me, and uh, I try not to pick things that I can't live with um, over a period of time, because you have to hear it over and over and over. And one time I picked music that I hated the most, and it was I had a job waiting tables at one time, and piped in um, what I call elevator music, you know, that terrible Manavani soup and mush. And uh, it drove me crazy <clears throat> as, as a waiter, and I had to listen to it. And thought, well, you know, this is a good challenge. If I can make a dance to that music, I can do anything. <laughs> is that dance still in your active repertory? Yes, it, it yeah. was just revived. Um, yeah, we're doing it on the road now. Yeah. <laughs> So um, I have heard you say uh, in the past that um, you considered yourself at one time the enemy of ballet, mm. um, and so that you're you know, taking classical music, which was more familiar for the ballet world, and you, I should say that you went on to acknowledge that maybe the war is over and you're no longer quite the enemy that you once were. Um, could you say something about why you might have at one point found yourself in kind of an oppositional place to ballet? Well, I, I didn't want to be a ballet dancer. I just, it, it, something turned me off about it. What I saw, and I hadn't seen much, uh, but there was something about the, the manners, the European uh, heritage mm -hmm. of court manners that I just didn't connect with. And, and I also could connect with the modern dance that I'd seen. So I, it was very easy for me to decide to be a modern dancer. And, uh, I never really thought of myself as a, as a, certainly not a competitor to ballet. Ballet was in the ascendancy, mm -hmm. and probably still is, um, as far as audience um, attendance. But um, 
I, n I never felt at war with it, but I also didn't want to try to combine ballet with modern. That was never an intent of mine. I saw that modern dance could be lyrical, and I think when people compare my work or some of the work to ballet, sometimes they don't see that there are no ballet steps as such. It's just that the feeling is, is lyrical and light. Uh, like ballet is uh -huh. supposed to be. So that where ballet has a very sort of strict movement vocabulary that's been handed yeah. down for centuries, yes. that you're not working with that kind well, of... Well, as I understand it, each modern choreographer sort of has to invent their mm -hmm. own vocabularies. Mm -hmm. And I, I do try to invent a different uh, language or vocabulary for each dance. So I'm like starting over all the time. Each time I start a new dance, it's as if I'd never done one before. And I like this. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm very forgetful. I forget the dances that I've done. But even the newest one, if you asked me to tell you what happens on stage, I couldn't do it. I've already forgotten it. So when, once your dancers have it, then they're the ones... It's theirs. Them, huh? And then if it's revived or taught, it's through videos and notation and the people that have done it, teaching it. Um, but I don't, I, I don't remember the steps. One of the things that um, I realized this spring at the um, city center season in New York when I had the opportunity to talk with several of the um, company members uh, who had been in the company in the past is that there is an enormous sort of Taylor family and that people really yes. um, feel deeply connected to the works and that one of the uh, great ways that uh, dances were re dances were revived for the for the 50th anniversary tour was sort of an oral history what what you danced this part before and what were you thinking and what did mr. Taylor tell you um, could you say something about that sort of that longevity of sort of the livelihood of well, the company we had itself? this gathering of dances some from the very beginning and there were about over 50 of them that got together for a reunion recently. And uh, <clears throat> it's very interesting to hear their reminiscences because they varied, so you know how memories is. But it is a family, and you see it's a family, and like most families as I understand it, we've been through a lot together, and um, all the laughs and the tears and the fighting and the admiration and the love accumulates and as you live longer and after the dancers leave their memories usually remember just the good parts <laughs> yeah so it was really nice to see them together and uh, it made me very happy personally well, one of the things i was i was struck by is that at, at one point you know the, th that was you up there with them and it was sort of you know a bunch of of people who were sharing an experience now yeah. now I'm sorry to say you're not 20 anymore, so you're, some of the younger members of your company are having a really different life experience. Do you, when you get them in the studio, they're coming in to a company where they are awestruck by your, your, the, the, the legacy that they're stepping into. Does, do you find that working with the younger dancers, you have to break down some kind of barrier that you didn't used to have to do? It's, it's different now because of the age gap, because, you know, when I was dancing, we were all the same age, so it was very different, and now I'm like, you know, their great-grandfather or something. <laughs> um, and I get a little more respect, I must say. That's 
Not always, but sometimes. <laughs> so it's just different. And um, the young ones come in into the company. It is hard to come into a group of people who've worked together for a while and, and know each other very well, and then you're the newcomer. And But the others make it easy for them. They welcome them. Um, they help them a lot. And they look out for each other. And that's the thing about a turn company. You have to depend on the people you're working with. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of uh, um, mutual dependence. Well, it seems like in addition to your dancers being great collaborators of yours, you've also worked with some tremendous collaborators over the years. Um, mm -hmm. as, as Ava mentioned, with Robert Rauschenberg working mm -hmm. with you. Mm -hmm. um, You've also worked with Jennifer Tipton for years as your lighting designer yeah. and Betty DeYoung as your rehearsal director. But the um, collaborator I want to ask you about is George H. Tassett, PhD. <laughs> if you well, could say something about him. Would you want me to admit he doesn't exist? <laughs> yeah, I do. If you could just say something about why well, you invented yes, I'll him. Yes, try <laughs> I'll try to explain. I, I don't know if it'll make much sense. But I was asked by Robert Gottlieb, who was the head of Knuff, publishers at the time to write a, a book. And I said, well, what kind of book? He said, an autobiography. And I'd never written anything before. And I said, well, how do you do that? I, I somehow thought he would be my, he was going to be my editor. And I th thought that editors taught you how to write. <laughs> and so I had a lot of questions, which he would hardly ever answer. And he said, well, it's really easy, you just... I said, well, like transitions. I knew about transitions in dance from one section to another. And he said, well, it's easy, you just turn the page. <laughs> and, he, and he made it sound like fun, and, uh, which was a big help. Um, and so anyway, uh, he said, you've got to remember one thing. I said, oh, he said, you've got to reveal yourself. So I went home and I made a list of all the things I was not going to reveal. <laughs> but after a while, after I got into it, I, I began to realize that this wouldn't make sense if you, the reader didn't know that and this and the other. But I didn't want it to be a tell-all. And so I invented a person named Tacit, George Tacit, who in the book is this sort of uh, terrible, pretentious mentor. And I've never felt like I had a mentor, and so it was fun to dream up one. <laughs> Except Tacit was not your ideal mentor. He, all of his advice was usually nonsense. But it was a way to give the reader uh, information, if they could get through this screen, um, about myself without saying it directly. And that was the reason that I thought up George Tassin. <laughs> um, so this leads me actually to some of your other artistic The book things. isn't really a, an autobiography. It's really more like a novel. <laughs> 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 Or at least I tried to make it that way. <laughs> we, so it, that, that um, your autobiography or your novel actually stops right as Esplanade is being. Yes, made. it stops when I stop dancing, and 
I thought I couldn't go on and on and on forever. I mean, how long does a book have to be? I was going to limit it to 300 and some pages. And anyway, I was getting tired of writing. Um, and so I thought we'd stop at the time I stopped because I think when people ask about a dancer's life or any kind of person's life, to me it's the, the most interesting parts are how you got started. And this book is mainly about the early days, um, a little, a little, couple pages family background um, and growing up. But, but mostly, it's it's a on the road book. Mm -hmm. It's about the turn life and how that got started. And so, for so that somebody who is maybe a young dancer thinking about how, how does somebody set out to do this, this could be a place that they could. Look to yeah, it, huh? it would be a good warning. <laughs> they should know what they're getting into. So that was in 1987. You've made great dances since then. You've lived a lot more life. Would you imagine a, a sequel to the book? Or would Mr. Tassett also I don't a sequel? think so. I, I like to write. Okay. I found that I loved writing just in the morning before the sun comes up, a cup of coffee. and a, I don't do computers, but I have a word processor. And uh, it's like a... a a neat typewriter that you can print out of. And, um, but I don't write about dance. I just write things to amuse myself. So um, could you say something about, I know you said you don't necessarily remember much about the newest dance you're making, but what, what's next? So 50 years, 50 states this year on tour. Yeah. What's, what's coming in the next 50 years? Well, I, I hope more of the same. Uh -huh. I, I don't know that the company can change much. Uh, I mean, the dancers will always change. Um, you know, they come and they go. And I don't intend to retire, because um, I love what I do, and I can't imagine doing anything else. I don't think I'd be good at anything else. So part of your legacy is not just your company and your autobiography and the dances that have been such a contribution oh, to Oh, well, culture. a lot of arrangements have been made for the company to continue after I'm gone. But there's also the legacy of dancers who have turned into choreographers from your company. Oh, yeah, so many do. Can you say something about that? Well, I try to warn them. <laughs> but, um, and it's very difficult to have your own company. Believe me, it's not easy. There are all kinds of pitfalls. And um, I was lucky I had... Uh, wonderful managers um, over the years, and uh, and so I had a lot of help. But it, there's a lot of responsibility in uh, taking care of your people, and and the money, of course, is the big problem because this is a nonprofit world, and um, uh, it's it's gotten harder and harder to start a dance company these days because of that. It's not that there are any less people that would like to have their own company. It's just financially, it's, it's very difficult. So, um, so, but did you know that, I mean, like maybe Graham knew you were going to leave her company and start a company? She knew right from the beginning, yeah, she, she's smart, yeah. Can you, can you sense it in young dancers that you think, oh, this one, this one has a kind yes, of imagination? Yes, uh, some, not all. Uh, and for those who I know uh, have the urge to make their own pieces, uh, I'll sometimes stop rehearsal and ask them, what, 
why did I do this instead of that? And it's not like I'm teaching a course, mm -hmm. God knows. But um, I'm just making sure that they're being aware of, of decisions, constant decisions that are being made. I don't do dances by chance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's luck involved, but, but not conscious. So, um, did you realize that that would be an important part of your legacy? I mean, it's sort of, it seems no, like it's, you're no, starting to realize, well, that. look, look. Yeah, when the first one left to, to become a choreographer, I think it was Dan Wagner and Danny Williams Grossman, and they, Danny still has his company in Canada, and many of them do, and many uh, don't have their own companies, but they job around, they choreograph for other companies. Oh, yeah, Twyla And there are many, Twyla, Pina Bausch, mm -hmm. Um, oh, there are dozens. Yeah. Wonderful. David Parsons, Lila. David York, yeah. Parsons, Lila York, um, and some of them are very, very good. Uh -huh. and I'm very proud of them. That seems like a, a, a nice uh, sort of other kind of legacy to be able to realize your father. Yes, it is. It really is, and they keep in touch. Most of them. Let yeah. me uh, open it up for your questions, and I'll um, repeat them uh, so everybody can hear. Yes. I gather that the dancers seem to be very cooperative with each other, but I'm sure that there must be some rivalries, there must be some jealousies there. It's a, I think this is a question about asking you to air your, the company's dirty laundry a little bit. We know that the dancers um, are, co are cooperative, but do they also, is there some rivalry, is there you know, some competitiveness to, to be? Yes, but I think, the, I don't know that there's real jealousy, I, I, I hesitate to say, but a rivalry can be a very healthy thing. Uh, competitiveness, can, if, if you work it right, is, is a very good thing in business, in, in everything. It, it makes you better if you have a competitor. Um, and they watch each other very closely because they learn from each other. Um, but it's not... It, it's not... Um, it's not usually a problem, you know. And if there are tiffs, and there are, they, they usually work them out themselves. And I tell them, you know, if something's bothering you, you know, when you're closed up together in theaters and in hotels and in, trans in buses, planes, cars, for months at a time, you know, we all have little quirks and the, some things that are annoying to other people. <laughs> Um, I say, if something's really bothering you, go to the person and talk it out. Get it out in the open, you know. And uh, I think they do that. Um, don't let it fester, because then it, there's like a huge explosion, which can be disastrous. One of the things that it you know, a lot, of, a big thing about choreography, believe it or not, is not so much the putting the dance together. It's arranging for the good morale of a company like ours. And that, that you can, there are things that can be done to help keep morale up. And that's very important because I do believe that audiences, they may know nothing, have never seen a dance concert before, but they always notice whether there's teamwork. That one they of the things that it seems a, like a close knit group, you, it becomes very clear very quickly. Is that you also give in in making work for the dancers that you give them 
individual opportunities to shine. That maybe not everybody is going to always have that. Yeah, well, that's another thing, thing in casting. You have to be careful not to, well, overburden some dancers and underburden the others, uh, but kind of distribute it. Not democratically, you can't, but more or less fairly. And also what they do well, it seems like that. And also their seniority is a factor, how long they've been with the company uh, usually is a factor in how much they get to do or how many special things they get to do, special parts. Yeah. <laughs> the question is about the piece Cloven Kingdom, yeah. and what was your inspiration? My inspiration? Gosh, I'm, I, don't, I, I always wonder where any inspiration comes from. Um, and it, it's a question that, that is interesting to most people. Um, I, I really don't remember what I had on my mind for that dance, except and the, and the title, Cloven Kingdom, and the little program note, which is a quote from Spinoza that says, man is a social animal. So the dance is, but that didn't come till the end. I didn't know what I was doing, but it was, to me, it was a combination of, of animalistic movement with like high society. So that it was about that dual nature that I think most of us have. And it's been popular piece because it's easy to relate to. <laughs> yeah. How do you uh, preserve your repertoire, your legacy? Did you record all your early work? Can people go back and see that? Do you use notation? The, the question is about how this 50-year le legacy is preserved. And if people oh. want to see these dances, or you wanted to remount yeah. them, what would be the process? Yeah. Well, they're done on film. Video, uh, dance notation, Laban system, dancers' memories, my eye. When I see the piece reconstructed, I know if anything's off. That I do remember. Um, and uh, those are the things that we remember them with. So it's quite possible to keep doing these things for, you know. Time. And so, uh, several have been uh, filmed for a series called Dance in America, and, and so there are videotapes available, which probably... Yes, those, but those are, are nice, nicer to look at than our work tapes, because the work tapes are usually the full stage, um, which is sort of boring to see when the figures are so little. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the ones that are done by, by um, television, uh, programs are uh, are souped up. That is, the camera has to come in close, and it's all necessary. But it's not the stage version usually. Changes have to be made, respacing, all that kind of thing. There's a question in the back. Yeah. Yes, I remember Gula very well, and she was one of the earlier members 
of the company. And um, I never had any trouble with Jewel. <laughs> she had big teeth, and she was a nice person, very nice person. And she kept in touch, her and her husband, Elihu, yeah, for years. And then she went and taught. And uh, so that's the main thing I remember about Jewel. I d Could everybody hear that? It's a question about the, um, he has, as a musician, he wonders about the um, musical interpretation and what, what kinds of manipulation is being done in the choreography. Yeah. Well, that's a part of my work that I enjoy the most, I think, is uh, forming the relationship of the, of the movement to the sound. And um, it's very interesting to me. There's so many ways you can do it. A lot of people, I think, think that musicality in a choreographer is a matter of following the music note by note, like we call it Mickey Mouse and, and uh, you know, like in a cartoon where somebody gets clonked on the head, the sound goes bonk. Um, but I don't think this is necessarily musical. I think it's part of the range that the possibilities in, in forming the relationship, but I like in general to think of the relationship of the the dance to the music as a kind of conversation between friends, like um, sometimes you both talk at once, and sometimes nobody says anything, or and sometimes you take turns talking. Um, and I found that um, that um, if if I mimic the music too much. It's just like hitting you over the head. It's, it's too repetitious. So I try, I mean, I, I think all choreographers instinctively try to go with the music, the music's rhythm, the music goes up, you dancers go up, it goes down, that kind of thing. And I try not to do that too much, but it, it's very tempting. Uh, is, that, is that the kind of yeah. thing you mean? Yeah. Yes, sir. And following up on, on that comment, when you put the third element of the, of the story in it, does that bring you to a different mindset when you have the dance, the music, and the story? And mm -hmm. is, is it an objective for the audience to know what the story is from the movement mm -hmm. for the dance? And I guess you know, it's a sort of complicated relationship. Does it, ever, does it even make a difference whether the audience knows the story or gets the story out of the dance to, to really appreciate it? Uh, this is a question that follows on the question of the um, use of music with dance. What happens if there's a third element and that's a story? And I think I think that's actually maybe even a kind of two-part question because sometimes in your works there there are there is a plot or there is a sense of character or yeah. you're evoking a specific setting. Other times it's really pure dance. And then yeah. does it matter whether the audience understands that story? Well, I think it. Terribly important because I don't know why I'd bother with any of this if, if it's not communicating. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I mean, I said that you have to see one of those dances twice to get the whole thing, but that's an unusually layered and complicated piece. 
so I'm sorry about that. But, uh, um, but the whole thing is conceived sort of at the same time. You don't just uh, put a bunch of steps together and then try to think of a story that goes with them, you know. Um, I guess you could do that, but, you know. But in a more, say, um, Esplanade, which is a dance that really investigates sort of walking, mm -hmm. falling, running. The natural movement. Do you, does the audience need to know that that's what you were investigating as a choreographer? No, in that case, I don't think so. They, that's not the most interesting idea about that dance, that it's composed of natural movement. You can forget that, because I think the reason that dance um, goes over, uh, or can go over, is its energy and its uh, makes it possible for each audience, for audience members to relate to things that are happening in it. Um, and it's mostly joyful. Um, but I think basically it's the high energy that... Mm -hmm. That, that is, maybe there's a kinesthetic kind of... Point. Uh -huh. Another question? There was somebody here? Oh, okay, thank you. I was wondering what happened to the dance set to the elevator music. Uh, the, the, the question, I'm sorry, sorry, is about the dance that was set to the elevator yeah, music. We just revived it, and you can come see it in New York in, in March, if you like. What's the title of the dance? Lost, Found, and Lost. Oh, good. Come again. Oh, well, come back and see it. <laughs> see if it's the same. I think we have time for one last question. Yes. I'm curious about the evolution of your creative process. You said that now, currently, uh, in making dances, much of it's dictated by practical issues. And I'm wondering how that differs from a time when there was no budget, no secure, secured venue, no commission fee. So early on, how was yeah. your creative process? Well, there was always a money problem, especially in the <laughs> beginning. And, and it was always, uh, you know, you do what was practical. And, and there wasn't any, any body to make the costumes for us. We'd make our own and get the cloth uh, off the street somewhere or whatever. Um, so... Sounds like maybe you're saying that, that those kinds of limitations don't necessarily have to be hampering your creative inspiration. Oh, no, not at all. Limitations are good. Yeah. No, it's 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 the it narrows things down, you know. Uh, I believe in limitations, and and you know I don't put every dance step I can think of in one dance, you know. That seems like a really important um, note for a young choreographer that that you're going to make another dance. That that uh, maybe you didn't realize it when you were in 1954 making your first dance, but mm -hmm. if you had tried to do everything in that one dance, we probably wouldn't still be so interested in seeing what's your new idea and what's the new thing you're interested right. in. Yeah. Well, you will be able to see some of these great works um, on Tuesday, and if you don't already have a ticket, there are 49 other states on the tour, so maybe you can find them somewhere else. Thank you very much, Mr. Taylor. Thank you.